If you would, uh, just bow your head. We're going to open with a, uh, with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the minds that you've given us, the complexities that we can comprehend, even an ultimate God, uh, one that loves us and desires a relationship with us. And Lord, even amongst ourselves, we have conflict with one another. And uh, Lord, we just ask that this session, this afternoon, uh, in front of these people, that we might better understand your plan for us human beings dealing with conflict amongst brothers and sisters. So, Lord, we, uh, we lift this session up to you and uh, just ask for your Holy Spirit to stir. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, we want to start off with just uh, a little bit of introduction. Uh, I'm Rick Allen, and uh, I am the CEO of an organization called MedSend. I've been with MedSend for about 15 years. Prior to that, I was pastoring uh, up in Connecticut, just outside of New York City. And prior to that, my very first career was in the uh, software business. So I was a business person before I became a pastor, before I became uh, a missions leader. And uh, it's just been a, uh, a joy and a privilege uh, to serve the Lord through the ministry of Edson for the last 15 years. Jim? Uh, my name is Jim Ritchie. I'm an emergency medicine doc. I was in the Navy for 25 years and uh, after that became a healthcare missionary Yay! and moved to uh, Chigoria, Kenya. We lived, I lived there with my family for about six years. We helped start a Christian family medicine residency there and were a team leader there for a while. And uh, we came back from there in 2020, and I've been with MedSend for the last three years, working primarily with the Longevity Project. And what we want to do is uh, we want to start uh, at the end, and we want to uh, ask you to remember a couple of questions as we walk through the various topics and see where you land. We will bring these questions back up later, uh, but we want to put them before you now, uh, just so that you're kind of listening through the questions to what Jim and I will share with you. You want to move over here? Did it work? Pardon? You want to move over here so you can see. Thank you. So we'll start by defining what team conflict is. And um, here's one that's often heard. You can read it yourself. But it is one of the primary reasons why individuals often leave the mission field. Uh, and I don't know about you, but to me that's heartbreaking that we are the reason we leave the mission field. Uh, we prepare, uh, we raise support, we go before the Lord, we surrender ourselves, sometimes with families, and then we wind up returning with conflict with other brothers and sisters. And it is preventable, it is difficult, and one of the reasons why it's so uh, difficult is the level of complexity once you actually get onto the field. And it's, it's multi-layer, it's multifactorial, if you will. Uh, you'll see where things get layered into complexity. Marriage and family and single and status and then, you know, you see roles 
in the hospital or the clinic or the community? Do you see medical specialties layered on top of one another, interdependencies amongst them? You see specialties and uh, the housing situation, where you live, how far it, it is to get to your place of service, how difficult or challenging your living environment is, level of authority and influence, where do you rank in the pecking order, so to speak, your influence over the others. The agency that you've gone with and their influence over you and what it is that you can do or cannot do, how much support you have or do not have. And then there are other issues that are legitimate within our own mental capacities, right? The challenges that we find ourselves and the stressors that come on us and all of this layers on uh, oftentimes improperly uh, deployed in a way where uh, frustration exhibits itself in conflict and we're there to represent the Lord and many times the only place to release that anxiety, that conflict, that sense of frustration is amongst your peers uh, and uh, we're going to try and unpack some of this for you this afternoon and give you some sense and ideally some tools that you'll be able to take away. Jim? So, thank you, Rick. So, despite all these many situations, these many opportunities for disagreement, different perspectives, different pressures, um, there are some places around the world that we've found where they seem to have broken the code with dealing and preventing team conflict. In, in MedSend, we get to work with 50 different sending agencies and the missionaries that are involved in those agencies. So we get to see all sorts and talk to all sorts of different people around the world. And as such, occasionally we'll encounter a place or a missionary from a place where they say, you know, we have a lot of concord in our place. People don't want to leave. They stay for a long time. They might stay for decades. We don't have a lot of infighting. We, we have a, a better understanding of what's going on here, um, which is uh, it's noteworthy. Now, these places are not heaven on earth, but they seem to have been very deliberate about making sure that the experience of the missionaries and the longevity of the missionaries is perceived and understood. So... This map represents some of these places, not all of them, but some of the places. I thought I'd put them up there to show that um, we're looking at Africa, Asia, and some other spots. There, there are some other places, I'm sure. But as we've been able to talk with people from these organizations, from these places, we've realized that there are certain commonalities among these happy places, if you will. We'll use that term, the happy places. Um, and so we'd like to share some of those commonalities with you of these happy places that are intended to prevent, preclude, or assist in dealing with teen conflict. So in our talk, we're not going to be talking about how to win arguments, okay? Although we will have an interesting group exercise. I hope you picked up your weapon at the door uh, for the teen conflict exercise. Kidding about that. Um, so we won't be talking about how to win arguments. We won't be talking about principled negotiation. All right. We won't be talking about general conflict management. 
Those are all worthy topics, but there are only a zillion YouTube videos on those topics and lots of good books around there. So there, there are plenty of places to work with that. We'd like to do something that's a little more specific to the experience of healthcare missions. Something we will also not do is criticize other methods. There are uh, so many wonderful mission hospitals around the world where there's been a lot of sacrifice, some difficulty and some strife, but people have been pouring out uh, themselves for the Lord and have served with great dedication. And so we want to honor that. We're not going to be criticizing that at all. But we will be talking about the ideas that have been underpinning this approach to Team Concord in, uh, in, in these locations and in, in the happy places. And we'll also talk about some specifics about how those happy places flesh out those ideas. Fair enough? Okay. So, predominant, overarching uh, of the concepts that we hear from some of these happy places is a dedication to unity. A dedication to unity. And you might think, well, duh, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, not having conflict. Okay, this seems like a platitude, really. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a true dedication to being unified, which means a willingness to subordinate my own desires, my desires for the sake of group unity. There's uh, one of the leaders of one of these happy places, and we were talking with her lately, and we asked her, what do you, what, she's, she's a national leader, and we asked her, what would you like for American missionaries to know before they come and work with you? And she said, quote, make every attempt to be one, end quote. A dedication to unity. And this is not just, you know, uh, something to be made up. This is actually a biblical concept for, to have, be dedicated to unity. David talks about unity. Jesus talks about unity, uh, that they may be one, perfected in unity. The disciples were continuing with one mind in the temple. Paul talks over and over about unity, about being one body in Christ, members of one another, of the same mind, one accord, no division, same mind, same judgment, like-minded, bear one another's burdens, both groups into one, one body, tolerance for one another, unity, unity, unity. Peter talks about similar things. This is a biblical concept that extends from the Old Testament through the New Testament. It is a command. It's an admonition. It's a priority. It's something that we really should hold tightly as a legitimate goal to aspire to. And you can, you know, you can imagine what sort of an impact that might have with the idea of disunity or with conflict. Also, interestingly, when we talk with some of these leaders, especially some of the, the national leaders, they say, quote, the expatriates that are especially good at integrating are those who live their faith and understand the meaning of humility. The more spiritually mature are more ready to prioritize unity, which requires mutual submission. So, I don't know, that may seem counterintuitive, that the more mature you are, shouldn't you be more insistent on your way because you've done this before and you know what's going on. But they contend that the more spiritually mature people are the ones who are most ready to subordinate their own personal desires for the sake of unity, for the sake of the group. But there's a problem. There's a problem. 
especially for us Americans, and I'm going to talk to the Americans in the group, I realize we're not all that way, but I'm going to talk to the Americans for a minute. Herk Hofstede is a Dutch sociologist who for decades has been studying societies all around the world. And he's figured out certain spectrums to describe among these different cultures all around the world. And one of the spectrums that he talks about at length is individualism and collectivism within a culture. And I'll just let him describe that. And now here's the definition. Individualism is a society in which the ties between individuals are loose. Everyone is expected to look after her or himself and the immediate family, father, mother, and children. And collectivism is a society in which individuals, from birth onwards, are part of strong in-groups, usually the, the family, sometimes the extended family, uh, sometimes the village society, in collectivist societies, uh, people identify with we, they have a we identity. And in the individualist society, obviously, an I identity. The competition in collectivist society is not between individuals, but between groups, between tribes. You could say they are often tribal societies. And in the individualist society, the competition is between individuals. Uh, when it comes to carrying out a task together, in the collectivist society, the relationship comes first. The task comes second. In the individualist society, the task comes first and the relationship may come afterwards. And the last thing that I want to bring up is that a key word in collectivist society is harmony. There should be harmony inside the in-group. Even if people disagree, they should maintain the superficial harmony uh, because otherwise the in-group will be weakened, it will, be, it will fall apart. In the individualist society, the idea is that confrontations can do no harm, they can sometimes be healthy. Then in language, as linguists have looked at it, and not surprisingly, uh, the languages of individualist societies use more the word I. Actually, the most individualist language is English, and it is the only language I know that writes I with a capital letter. Uh, there are other languages that write U with a capital letter. Uh, in the collectivist society, sometimes there are languages where the word I is more or less taboo, and uh, where you, you are not supposed to use it. All right. I apologize that the video didn't work. It worked when I pre-flighted this, but at least we got the audio. Um, but isn't that interesting? You know, this aspect, uh, the, the different aspects of individualism and collectivism, and I thought that that part about, um, you know, I was especially interesting. So in this spec, uh, in, within collectivism and individualism, he's put together a scale from zero to a hundred in which zero is completely collectivist and a hundred is completely individualist. Okay, so it's not a score, it's just, you know, uh, it's, it's the scale. And he's put different countries on this scale over a period of time. And it's worth looking at this to see kind of where we fall. I realize that's small up there, but I'll just show you. On the extreme end of the scale is, guess who? It's us, the United States, with 91 points, okay? 
were more individualist than Australia. Right? So extreme. And also, interestingly, the countries we tend to go to to serve in healthcare missions are on the other end of the scale. East Africa, 27. West Africa, 20. Thailand, 20. Ecuador, 8. Okay? You see? So it is very different, um, the, the, the mindset of how we participate, coordinate, compete, discuss, are very different. Our mindset is different. And so if we were to put this on a bell curve, and this is not from his study, I made this slide up, but if we were to put um, this information on a bell curve, I think it's worthwhile to look at this. We'll use Kenya as representing the places where we go to serve. It would fall somewhere over here. So it's it's... Um, not exactly in the mean, but it's certainly within the norm. In the United States, we're over here. We are an outlier. We are not within the norm. The way we think about individualism, collectivism, is not normal to the rest of the world. It is extreme to the rest of the world. But if you think about it, if you go to an individualist and you say, Hey man, you're an outlier. What does an individualist say? Yes, it's, all right, you bet, I'm an individualist, and I'm all right with that. So we've really lost our insight into how different that is, how abnormal that feels to the rest of the world, and how fractious that can be when we're interacting with people from more collectivist cultures where harmony is so important. Okay? Now... I like to poke fun at the Army because I'm a Navy guy. And, you know, the Army's had some really good slogans over the years. And then there was this one. I am an Army of One. Is that ridiculous or what? Can you imagine? I am an Army of One. That's the opposite of what someone is uh, expected to do when they join in with the Army. Guess, guess who responded to this recruiting effort? A lot of extreme individualists who wanted to be an army of one. I don't want to wear that uniform. I am not marching with those guys, and I'm not listening to what you have to say. Right? You can imagine how well that went over. So, anyway, here's an, an example of how individualism does not work out when you need to have a collectivist group who are working together to accomplish a goal. So, continuing in our understanding of this idea of unity, as uh, these happy places have, have described them, They've run into certain issues that I think are worth, uh, worth exploring. Is unity the same as unanimity? What do you think? Okay. In unanimity, everyone votes the same. In unity, everybody doesn't vote the same. But those who vote opposite from the group are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to go along with what everybody else wanted, and I'm good with that, and you're not going to hear anything anything else out of that. That is unity as opposed to unanimity. Now, in this unity, we are not talking about manipulative unity. Okay? In manipulative unity, someone who's in charge, maybe a government does this, maybe you know, there, there can be certain situations where the person who's in charge says, okay, we're dedicated to unity, and so I am telling everybody this, and whoever doesn't do exactly what, what's, what I say is out of unity, and that is to be punished. That's manipulative unity, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about the kind of unity where people are mutually interested in, in each other and in supporting each other. I'd like to do a little exercise here for a second. 
um, and uh, invite you to speak with each other, maybe gather up in groups of two or three or something, and we won't take any longer than about three minutes. But I would ask you um, uh, to respond to this idea. Freedom is good, right? If freedom is good, more freedom is better, and complete freedom is best of all. Okay? So, if freedom is good, more freedom is better, and absolute freedom is best of all. If you will, just chat with the people around you and see what you think about that. We'll give you about three minutes. I see some animated discussions going on out there, so why don't we... uh why don't we bring it back in, and I'd like to hear what you think about that. If freedom is good, more freedom is better, and absolute freedom is best. What do you all think? Anybody have a response to that? Greg. Why? Oh, he says that taken to the nth degree is problematic. Why? We need Well, can you give an example? If freedom needs to be limited for the benefit of the group, I thought freedom was good. Why would you want to limit it for the benefit of the group? Okay. Okay. All right. Good. So it strongly works against individualism. Go ahead. The freedom is good. Limits are good too. Okay. God-given limits for things to be healthy. I think this is really good. Thank you. So what do you call a society where there are no limits? Anarchy is what you call that society. Chaos. Anarchy. One time I had someone, uh, a young fellow, who said, you know, I don't, I don't do well with authority. And I want to go to a place where there are no rules. And so I invited him to move to Somalia. Uh, that's the place closest uh, to that sort of an event. And he declined that offer. I'm not sure why that is. But yeah, so if, if, freedom, if absolute freedom is there, then Greg, you can shoot me if you want to, can't you? And I can shoot you if I want to. Which means then we need to armor up and we need to hire bodyguards and we need to arm ourselves and put uh, walls around our houses. So that freedom has led to a whole lot more restrictions, hasn't it? So freedom is really only meaningful in the context of law. 
a good limitation of certain freedoms provides much greater liberty and a more profound freedom. And good laws take that into consideration. Good laws like don't kill each other, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. All of those take away freedoms but provide a much greater important freedom. So what does that have to do with unity and team conflict? When we give up some desires, then we wind up with a better situation. And unity is very much like that. When we give up certain desires internally, then we wind up with a much better situation of unity. A unity in which I can trust you not to do something, uh, not to start a program, let's say, that makes that commits me to doing a whole lot more work that I never signed up for in the first place. And you can com- and you can expect me not to put a rooster in my backyard that then wakes you up, you know, several times during the night because we're committed to each other. I'd like to have a rooster, thank you, but I guess I won't do that because that that's not good. That's not good for the other. So, in a setting of unity in which we really are looking out for each other, we are giving up some desires for the sake of a more important entity. Um, which is unity. Unity is only achievable with compromise. And an important question is, what am I willing to give up? What am I willing to give up? Not what must you give up. What am I willing to give up to achieve that wonderful biblical goal of unity? Along with that, um, when we talk to the people in the happy places, one of the facets that they really tend to pay a lot of attention to is followership and leadership. I put those in that order on purpose. So they talk about having a healthy follower-leader relationship. Not one in which there's a lot of contention, but one in which there is mutual support, a mutual understanding of direction and how we're committing and how we're going to go about things. So I would ask you, in the New Testament... Which is more prominent in the teachings, that of leadership or followership? Solidly followership, right? Those who would be first must be last. Submit, therefore, to one another. It is so much about a willingness to follow behind and be, uh, be a follower. And so as we're talking with often the, uh, many people, not just the leaders, but the other team members in these happy places, they've emphasized that What they really need people to be um, especially good at when they arrive is skilled followership. More so than having leadership skills. We may think we need to arrive ready to be the leaders, but we actually, especially when we go for the first time, it's important to be a skilled follower. I'm not talking about a sheep. I'm talking about someone who is well-trained, who has a lot to contribute but someone who also realizes, I don't know everything about this place. I'm not really sure about the culture. I'm not sure how to go to a meeting or how should I respond to the leaders or or any of those things. And I am ready to learn and listen and join in with the efforts that are already in place. Um, Speaking again with one of the national leaders, they said, we have a plan. We have a strategic plan at our hospital. And so when someone comes... We need them to join in with the plan that we've already put in place, not come with their own program, with their own pot of money that they've already raised and that sort of thing to try to drive their agenda. They need to join in and be a skilled follower. 
And where does a healthy follower-leader relationship start? It starts. Does it start with the leader or with the follower? That's one of those either-or fallacies. It starts together. It really starts as a team in realizing the importance of both roles. There's one of these happy places that has this magnificent team covenant. It's wonderful. I'll share it with you if you like. Um, But in it, they have a section on team leaders. And one of the parts of, one aspect of this that I really like is this section of recognizing the need for someone to be a leader. We need somebody to be the leader to to make all, all sorts of decisions. We can't decide everything by committee. We need someone to be the liaison. Um, and so even though maybe nobody wants to be the leader, we need a leader. Please somebody stand up to do that and we will support you in that. When you say we need to do something, then we will follow that lead uh, and we will support you in that. We will pray for you. This is very much an understanding of a mutual support. The leader supporting the follower, the the follower supporting the leader in going forward. And I love this covenant. So a trusting relationship is really critical. Here's another piece um, that that actually can be a bit problematic. So we're going to explore it a little bit. In these happy places, they tend to report more of a peer leadership paradigm in which there's not a huge power distance between the leaders and the followers. It's actually closer so that the leader is approachable, is ready to hear about about things. In certain places around the world, this has been a bit of a challenge because often in the places where we serve, there's a high power distance relationship. The person who's in charge is way up here, and they really are not expecting to be challenged when they say something, especially you know at the end of a meeting or something like that, they need they expect people to respond and do exactly what they've said without challenging them, without uh, without creating difficulty. I saw this go really sideways one time at the place where I served, and um, our, our medical director, great guy, love him. Um, he he was he very much expected that when he said something, people would do what he said. And in an all-doctors meeting, so there were locals and there were, uh, there were expats, he said, listen, our patients want us to do what they're, asking, uh, what they're asking us to do. So if your patients ask you for antibiotics, give them antibiotics. And as you might imagine, uh, some of the, the Western-trained folks in, in the group were not happy with that idea, Right? challenged that and one of our one of our guys who hadn't arrived uh, or had only just recently arrived said man that's terrible medicine I'm not doing that in the middle of this meeting in front of all the other doctors that was a completely rupturing action that relationship never recovered basically because the boss had been shamed in front of everyone else had been challenged it was not good so in happy teams, there's a shorter power distance, though, where there, there is an opportunity to talk with the boss to, to help reorient things. And so, again, in the places where we tend to serve, if there is this high power distance and if that is the general expectation, how do you convince a high distance leader to narrow that a little bit, to make it more likely to have um, you know, this characteristic of one of the happy places? And this can be a bit of a challenge because often these are also shame cultures. Right? 
in which the boss doesn't, no one wants to be shamed, and the boss is very concerned about maintaining that perception of being someone who's very com- competent. They don't want to have that. And also, uh, we tend to have this reputation as being people who show up and try to push everything and be in charge and shove around a lot. And so to give up some of that control to these people with a reputation for, uh, for trying to shove their way through might be something that's going to take a while uh, to occur. So some suggestions, and again, these are from national leaders in some of these happy places. Some suggestions are to carefully build trust over time with these leaders who who are maintaining a higher power distance. To learn to submit and have great patience. Going back to the story with the antibiotics, um, when I went and spoke with our medical director, um, and we were trying to make things right and help him understand what that guy was saying and apologize and so forth, what I learned was if we would prescribe, or that um, if people didn't get the antibiotics that they were looking for, they would just go across the street to the pharmacy, and instead of getting amoxicillin, they would go buy gorillacillin, you know, which cost a whole lot more, was a lot more likely to cause side effects or other problems, and would contribute more to global resistance than giving them some amoxicillin and letting them go home. So it was actually not an unrealistic strategy. It was building relationship with the, with the patients, keeping them from being frustrated and from harming themselves more than would have, been, would have had otherwise. It was actually a reasonable thing to do, so learning to submit to that wisdom and having patience. Another recommendation is to build relationship, not just in the committee meeting, not just in the workplace, but away from there. Um, again, one of, one of the leaders said, You know, over here, committee meetings are not for deciding. They're for basically ratifying what has already been decided. We don't want arguments in front of each other. If you want to talk to me about this, that's great. Come to my office and we'll have a cup of tea. Um, Maybe sometimes it would be, you know, you invite them to your house or they they would invite you to their house. But those sorts of things. Build a a relationship of trust away from that uh, that circumstance of, of work. But you've got to have realistic expectations. This may take a long time. This same medical director, who was a good friend, um, I went to go have a, a visit with him in his office after my wife and I had lived at this place for five years. And in our conversation, he referred to us as our guests. Not our colleagues, not the people who are going to be with us long term, but our guests. And I realized, oof. This is, it will take a long time. We've spoken with some friends from Uganda, some, some, some national friends from Uganda who've told us we just don't trust anybody until we've known them for seven years. So it can take a while. Again, in this um, spectrum of followership leadership, uh, there are all sorts of different ways that this uh, can be complicated. One of the ways that I'll use as, a, as an illustration is the concept of transparency. Now, transparency is often highly desired, especially by the followers. And by this, I mean a disclosure of, you know, we're going to let you know how decisions are made, why we've decided on this and not that, a a lot of free flow of information, which sounds pretty great, sounds sounds very nice. But sometimes that may conflict with confidentiality. If you have a medical condition that you don't want anybody else to know about, but you need the medical director to take that into consideration in making out the schedule, 
then that's not a situation where you want complete transparency. So confidentiality can conflict with transparency. So uh, it's also possible that certain relationship decisions, you know, regarding different institutions where people, you know, might not want certain disclosures about their financial situation, whatever. Um, confidentiality is, uh, may trump transparency at times. And so the desire for transparency may exhaust good leaders who really are trying to make good decisions but just don't have time to explain every single thing. From the other perspective, though, it is um, in, in these happy places, they have tried to avoid silo situations where there are different groups making independent decisions that will affect the other group but without a sense of transparency. So this is a legitimate issue. It's just something that needs to be taken into consideration. And in this followership, leadership relationship, I like to think about this sort of a responsibility. So in these old wagons, people crossed the, uh, the, the, the great plains in the old days, right? If you think about the axles on these, this is basically, you know, surface against surface. There are no bearings in these wheels. It's a solid axle and a wheel spinning around on this thing in a wagon that's fully loaded, very heavy crossing, difficult terrain, a lot of friction. If you've been there, it kind of sounds like relationships in the mission field, right? Heavy load, difficult terrain, lots of friction. One of the ubiquitous presences on these wagons is that bucket that's there on the left. And it was full of grease, tallow or something. And one of the most important responsibilities in crossing the plains was to get the grease out and grease the wheels to make sure that that friction was as minimal as possible the squeaky wheel gets the grease. This is where that came from. Uh, so that was a key responsibility. If you didn't keep the, the axles greased, then the wagon would break down soon, and that had consequences. And so I think about this in these relationships, especially the leadership followership. Grace, grease, needs to be applied frequently. Uh, whether you think you need it or not, to prevent breakdown in this relationship. Another factor, this is something that Rick alluded to a little while ago, is the long view. And a core component of these mutually supported groups is what some of them called the, the long view. It's so easy to become distracted by immediate needs, you can lose sight of what we need to do to be sustainable, to have uh, a healthy, happy workforce uh, or, or team uh, going off into the future. So they want to organize themselves according to having the best chance of making a long-term difference. And so a question is, what's the most important component of any healthcare mission endeavor? And the answer is, of course, Jesus, right? What's the second most important <laughs> component of any healthcare mission endeavor? Is it the buildings? Is it the programs? Is it the equipment? Is it the people? And, of course, it's the people. That's the most important component. We really have to look after the people. And a second question is what's the most important or what are the most important factors in the overall effectiveness of those people? A number of these places with especially experienced mission leaders have said the thing that has made the most difference for us is excellent, healthy, long-term missionaries. Those who have stayed a long time. 
who understand the language very well, who understand the culture very well, who have earned the trust of people around here. So they know how to get things done congenially without a lot of friction. They know how to teach. They know how the folks here like to learn. It takes a long time to to build that kind of expertise. And that's one of the most important factors in the happy longevity of the whole of the whole group. So that's something to be prioritized in the in, in having in keeping the long view um, in order. I wonder what you think about this. What's the most common reason expats leave sooner than planned? It's not team conflict, by the way, especially in, with, with medical missions. That, that, that was an older study. Um, pardon? Well, it's burnout from overwork is the most common reason that uh, expats leave healthcare missions, at least from our experience and the experience of uh, some of our partners whose names you would recognize immediately. So burnout from overwork. So what do we need to do to prevent that from happening in order to carry out the long view? One of the most useful concepts that these groups have, uh, um, have articulated is this idea of being capacity-based instead of needs-based. What I mean by that, a needs-based organization says the work needs are considered first. What, what kind of work presents itself? And people are assigned to manage those needs. A hundred patients are showing up for clinic today. I only have one person to see them in clinic. It's going to be a long day. Okay? That's a needs-based idea. In a capacity-based system, a sustainable schedule for personnel is established first. What can we do for 20 years? What sort of a, uh, of a pattern can we do in, in order to serve well and healthy with health and happiness here for 20 years? And then the services to be offered are determined out of that from what sort of, of effort is available. It's a capacity-based situation. I cannot see 100 patients a day for 20 years. Can't do it. I can see 30, I think. And so let's set up a plan so that we can take care of 30 patients sustainably for 20 years and come up with a system of how that can work, okay? Who we can triage away, how can we take care of these people, how can we make sure that the right ones are seen, that sort of a thing. And to do this typically requires what I would consider to be a mass casualty mindset. In a mass casualty One of the definitions of a mass casualty is the demands that are presenting themselves exceed your ability to maintain the standard of care. A bus full of 40 people crashes outside the hospital and everybody has serious injuries and they all present at once. You cannot provide standard of care for those people. You have to go out and triage, decide who are we going to... You are okay for the minute. You've only got a broken femur. You, however, have a more serious injury, and I need, we need to see you first. And you, while normally we would have done everything for you, but uh, you're, you're too seriously injured, you require too many resources, and so we're not going to abandon you, but we're, we're not also not going to try to repair you. Okay. So those sorts of decisions are important in a mass casualty in order to do the most good for the most people. Difficult decisions, but important ones. And I would submit that often in healthcare missions, you could describe it as an ongoing mass casualty in which the demands routinely 
exceed the ability to provide standard of care. And so especially when you're working with a capacity-based system, you have to decide who are we going to wait until later or refer somewhere else? Who will we be able to take care of now and take care of well? And who are we just not going to be able to address their needs? Yes, they're serious, but we can't do that sustainably with the capacity that we have. And in, in certain situations, that may mean you, know, you, you need to shutter some, place, some programs or close some others. So, for instance, if you had four internists that were fully employed uh, seeing the people in the wards and in the ICU and three of those people go away for whatever reason, you can't keep all the wards and the ICUs open. You have to do something or at least delegate or, or, or triage a, a different way of making it all work. It does require institutional support to carry those things out. So regarding some um, mutually supported boundaries, uh, let's sort of describe some of those. First, I'd like to point out that unshared and uncoordinated personal boundaries tend to be a problem. If everybody in the group, most of the people in the group say, we want to work six days a week, and one person shows up and says, yeah, I'm just only going to work three days a week. The rest of the time I have other priorities. That doesn't go well usually. Um, There there tends to be resentment, fractiousness, and and that's not great. But mutually supported boundaries can be really edifying, can be mutually building for the the group. Uh, A couple of examples. Um, There's there's one that I learned of recently. I I just love this. Uh, There's a place where... Um, it, that offers neurosurgery, which is relatively uncommon, right, in healthcare missions, but they offer neurosurgery. So they receive a lot of referrals of patients who are just not something that, that the neurosurgeon is going to be able to fix. There's maybe a remote possibility, but it's so unlikely, and it would impoverish the family, and it would be a challenge to the hospital. Uh, so the neurosurgeons are bombarded with this. So they put together a system so that when someone arrives in casualty in the ER, there's an exam that they do, a validated exam that gives a survivability score. And if that number is below the survivability score, they don't call neurosurgery. They execute a different part of the plan, refer them somewhere else. And you see what that does? Previously, maybe there was all sorts of contention among the staff of, oh, could you at least give this one a try, please? You know, yeah, I realize it's not likely... uh, you know, a contest, that sort of a thing. The group has gotten together and decided, no, the number is this. We've agreed. We've given up some of our preference. Some people would rather that the number was higher, some lower, but no, we've agreed on this. So there's not that contention every time. There's actually support from each other. Yes, we're carrying out the plan the way that, the way that we decided to do it. And it keeps the hospital from expending resources in futility, and it keeps the patients and their families from expending resources in futility. It's actually a beautiful thing. I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. This can prevent some moral injury and the guilt that comes with you know, other people telling you, oh, I wish you could do this, I wish you could do that. And when there's a mutually supported boundary for practice, it really can help. Nebulous boundaries tend to be ineffective. There's a, a surgeon from one of these places was describing that when she went to the field the first time, she said, okay, I'm going to have boundaries, but she didn't define what those were. And the inevitable happened. You know, well, I'll just go in after church on Sunday, and then you find the, find the case that needs to happen, and then other things happen. And she turned around, and um, three months had gone by without a day off. And so the nebulous thing didn't work. And when she went back, she went to the medical director and said, this was my experience last time. And the medical director was horrified, had no idea that that had been her experience. 
She said, I want to take every weekend off from now on. And the medical director said, absolutely support you in that. Let's go talk to the nurses and everybody else and make this happen. Because we want you to be here for 20 years. She said that if she had continued to work the way she had, she might have survived a second term, but probably not. But with those boundaries that were supported by the institution, she said, I can do this for 20 years. So there we go. Now, boundaries tend to need boundaries, both at the high end and the low end. If a group says, you know, um, we feel that a five-day work week with four clinical days is what we can carry off, which actually winds up being pretty popular among the happy places, by the way, four clinical work days. But maybe if someone has no administrative responsibilities, maybe they could work five clinical days. If you have lots of administrative responsibilities, maybe three. But that's what we can work within. We'll say most people are going to be four. If someone shows up and says, nope, I'm only going to work two, that doesn't work. Um, Boundaries need boundaries, both high and low. So what are some ways that an institution can support mutual boundaries? Well, in the uh, the situation with uh, now limiting 30 patients to be seen in the clinic, the provider shouldn't be the one who's the gatekeeper. The institution can appoint appoint someone to be the gatekeeper to say, okay, here's how you decide which patients are coming and you decide that because the provider is the one that's doing the work. uh, They can support uh, good schedules like that, leave, home assignment, that sort of thing, Uh, supporting people when they need to go on leave. Consensus within uh, the institution about certain practice patterns. So in the old days with a lot of mission hospitals, when you showed up, you might have to work way outside your experience, way outside your expertise. We've all heard those stories. And a lot of people, some people go to the field now expecting that that's what they're going to encounter. But increasingly, that's not the experience that you encounter. There are actually people who are trained to do those sorts of things. And it's not good to work outside your area of expertise. There are some places where that is still required in some circumstances, but not a lot. And it's important for the group to get together and decide what, how, how much are we going to be up for people working outside their, their level of expertise so we can agree about it ahead of time. Same sort of thing would happen with delegation. If, um, you know, if the rule is a consultant really only works, uh, takes call one weekend out of a month, which again is one of those, uh, um, one of the standards that a lot of the happy places tend to have. You have one weekend of call a month and now there's not a consultant available for this weekend, how, how far are we willing to delegate? Are we happy with the residents running the show or the interns or the nurses or someone else? Who are we willing to delegate to that, that we as a staff agree uh, is going to be appropriate? There can be other program decisions. Let's decide together whether we're going to start this educational program because an educational program affects everybody. Um, is the institution willing to hire other people? In order to backfill, if someone needs to go on leave, that's important. Are we willing to shutter or close certain programs when their requirements exceed our capacity? All of these are mutually supported boundaries that an institution can support. There are also certain um, personnel management um, factors to consider. One of them that's uh, really popular among the happy places is screening. If someone wants to come work for us, Let's be sure that they're a good fit here, as opposed to just saying, well, we need a pediatric urologist. We really don't care who they are. Uh, You know, sooner or later you learn that that's not a good plan. 
in one of the places we spoke with, they, they now require that if someone wants to come work with them long term, they have to come there with their entire family for two weeks at least to learn here are the circumstances, here, here are the work policies, this is what we do, are you able to work with us in this? Um, and if they're, if they're not happy, then that, that doesn't happen. And if people do come and they don't fit in so very well, they're also willing to disinvite those people too. It's important to have a memorandum of understanding so that there are uh, shared expectations from, from both sides. But when an individual comes to work at a facility, they've pointed out that they need to recognize that the community is investing in them as much as they are investing in the community. Yes, you give up a lot to go to the field, but the field is also investing in you. They're often providing housing. They're providing mentorship. They're providing resources. They're you know, uh, covering for you when you make certain mistakes and all this sort of thing. It is costly to bring a new person to the field, and the new person needs to recognize that investment as they go there uh, and work within it. If the idea of boundaries is of interest to you, um, we have really been talking about institutional boundaries here and not personal boundaries. Uh, but with MedSend, we have a publication uh, that, that uh, talks about individual boundaries. If you'd like that, and you're welcome to do this or drop by our, uh, our space there. So we are circling back around to this idea of unity in general. Uh, unity is a beautiful thing. It's the key. It's worth sacrificing for when you know others are acting with uh, humility and they're sacrificing their preference for you and they know you're doing the same, life really changes and it becomes a more beautiful thing. Individualism is not healthy, neither is high power distance leadership. The Lord loves unity. Here's a section from Philippians in which Paul goes on and on about unity. And then in Ephesians describes what the, the secret to that which is submitting to one another. One of the leaders in, uh, in, in the organization said, you know, if you have a hospital that's been around for a while and it's time to make changes like these, it's sort of like this. A big old cruise ship that has to turn around in a tight harbor. It can't do it by itself. It needs a lot of tugs pushing and pulling to orient it in the right direction. It takes a while. And so what you don't want to have is you don't want to go to a place and say, well, we've introduced these concepts to people. I wonder if something's going to happen. No, it really takes all of us getting together to help turn the ship and make it work. So, with all of these uh, descriptions, I just want to put out, uh, point out, you know, sometimes people say that the only way to do healthcare missions is just to work until you burn yourself out, just to work and work and work. And again, I don't want to dishonor people who have really had a lifetime of sacrifice on the field. I really honor that. But the point is, that really doesn't have to happen. These other ways can be done. They have been done. Unity has to be a burning desire because it requires a lot of hard work and compromise and ongoing management and many buckets of grace. But it's definitely worth, uh, worth spending the time and the effort to bring about. It's a biblical thing. It's what we can do. Okay. So we're, we're happy to take a few questions. Um, I think supper is in about ten minutes. And so, uh, might there be questions?
Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 it's, that's something that um, I would say is best addressed well ahead of time. And I know that's hard to say when you're already there and, and you're in the situation. Establishing expectations ahead of time is really so critical. And uh, yeah, I, I, if I'm understanding your question correctly, it's regarding like groups that are pushed together and show up at the same time and are doing that sort of work, especially like short-term groups that, uh, that come. So important for everyone to understand that. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. In a number of these places, they've said that one of their biggest challenges is with short-termers who come saying, I'm just here to work. I'm just here to work, and I don't need Sabbath, and I'm not going to take a break, and, and I want to do this, which makes everybody else look bad, and it kind of disrupts the paradigm, and it can be really frustrating. So far more important for the groups to understand the paradigm before they come and be willing to join in in a similar way and experience the benefits of unity. There are a couple of places, a couple of these happy places that actually don't accept short-termers for exactly that reason. They've just, uh, it's just been too fractious for them. So um, working that out ahead of time is very important. So great, great, great point. Thank you for that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah, since we're, uh, yeah, we, we've finished our hour, we'll be hanging around, be happy to visit with you, and uh, we thank you for your attention. God bless you.